But not everyone believes that biology is destiny. For many scientists, it's your experiences in life that count. Your upbringing, your education, your environment. Chief among these scientists is psychologist John Watson, who has a theory that is the nerve... Pigeon learned that pecking the disc produced a reward. Then the behavior of pecking could be studied in relation to how often that reward was offered. Or in Skinner's terms, what was the schedule of reinforcement? And you can schedule it so that the reward occurs every now and then when a pigeon does something. We usually use a response when a pigeon pecking a disc. Welcome to episode one of uh, Spit and Twitches, the Animal Cognition Podcast. I'm your host, Dave Broadbeck. Uh, today, our, our very first guest, my very first guest on the podcast is Chris Sturdy. Uh, Chris is a professor of psychology and a member of the Neuroscience and Mental Health Unit at the University, at the University rather, of Alberta. Chris is a BA in psychology uh, from the University of Windsor, as well as an MA and a PhD from Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario. Queen's is a decent school. It's not U of T, but it's a decent school. Um, Chris studies the neuroethology of song learning and more generally songbird communication. I was really happy he wanted to be my first guest in the podcast. And now my conversation with Chris Sturdy. All right, so uh, as I just mentioned in my little intro there, um, I'm going to talk to Chris Sturdy today. I really appreciate you coming on today, Chris, because, of course, it's the first uh, episode of, of this uh, podcast, of this project. So uh, I thought, who better to come on than someone who bought me tequila shots at my 30th birthday until I – I think that's the reason I can't see that well now. Uh, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> was that night. You you were perfectly fine right before that, and then the next thing you know, yeah. albinism. It just came out of nowhere. <laughs> it happens. Uh, yeah. Well, it wasn't a vaccine. Yeah, but. that's right. It was you and John Crystal? I think it's your fault. Um, and of course, we we knew each other before then. That's why you were buying me drinks at a conference. Um, because you did your undergraduate degree with Jerry Cohen, right? At at, at Windsor, right? Actually, I I, uh, I worked with Jerry, and you know. I, I'm happy to tell people the story and because it's, you know, it may look or people may have this idea that when you, you know, get to, you know, I guess a final destination or an actual job at some, you know, when you get a, a real job kid, as they say, hmm. um, people think that you've done so because you had some master plan and you thought that, um, you know, you, you set out kind of like a, in, in Doogie Hauser from high school thing. I am going to do this, that, and the next <laughs> thing, and it's going to yeah. work out. I mean, I was the biggest uh, muddler. I had no clue what I was doing. I mean, I went to university basically because my mother said, you know, you really don't know what you want to do. So why don't you go to university and basically figure out what you might want to do? Or at least, I mean, the subtext was, or at least get out of the house so I don't have to see you moping around not knowing what you want to do. Um, so I went and and uh, had uh, various uh, successes and failures and eventually found myself in Jerry Cohen's uh, animal learning class 353 and part of the class was you had to come up with a research proposal um, as you know, often we have kids do in classes <laughs> and you had to actually go and meet with uh, Jerry and tell him about you know what it was that you wanted to do and I can't even remember what it was I mean I think it was something to do with um, species specific defense reactions and bowls and and whatnot and it was I thought it was kind of cool and I have no idea what the project was. Right. It was probably crappy. And even though it was probably crappy, Jerry still, for whatever reason, you know, thought that I was worth paying attention to, probably because I was doing pretty well in his class. And uh, we took a tour. And I still remember him taking me to the basement and showing me his second office in the basement, which was kind of cool. But it was like, it was the classic 
um, professorial office because there was there was a desk, but you could only discern that there was a desk because there was this large pile of papers that couldn't surely be all papers. There had to be something <laughs> underneath it supporting yeah. it. And from you know, he definitely pick up picked up from the top of this you know horrendous pile a uh, reprint. You know, back in the day when we used to have these paper things. Yeah. And he showed me the reprint, and I can't remember who it was, but it was it was him and, and two other people, and they were students. And he says, well, look at this. If you come here and join the Navy, you know, you can <laughs> you can see the world and publish papers. And and so I thought, wow, this is great. And, of course, I had no um, – you have no idea really what it means to do the science. And you also have no idea because, of course, he showed you the goal – uh, and you think, oh, great, I can publish a paper. And it's like you start working in the lab, and it's like, well, when am I going to publish a paper? And you're working in the lab and working in the lab. <laughs> and I think that was like 1992, okay. and I graduated w- with my honors thesis completed in 94. And I think our paper, the publication date on on our paper from my time in his lab was 1996. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. I mean, it's funny. I have a very similar experience because Jer- Jerry was uh, on sabbatical at Western and he was doing stuff in Nancy Innes's lab and I was running rats for her. And so I, I actually got to know Jerry before you did, of course, because I'm a little older than you, but also uh, in much the same way, Nancy just wanted someone to run her rats and she, you know, I ran, I did it and it was for beer money. Right. Uh, <laughs> I think it yeah. might have been less than beer money in, in Windsor. I, uh, I remember the only way that they could swing it, because Jerry didn't have a grant at the time, although he's pretty well funded now, mm-hmm. was that um, I think I, I cleaned, I did animal care stuff, and I think it was something like, it was, I can't remember the multiple. It was either 70 every week or 70 every two weeks for cleaning rat poo and stuff. Okay. Um, I mean, animal care, stuff that absolutely needed to be done. Sure. but. You know, paying rent and and whatnot on whatever it was, seventy bucks a week. Um, so he he supplemented my income by I, uh, the one summer I went I went back and forth between uh, my hometown of Glencoe, Ontario, and I would drive down after working uh, at a pizza place. I'd drive down at eleven thirty at night, so I'd crash out at one in the morning and get up and run rats by nine o'clock the next morning. And that first morning after doing the 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 double back-to-back weird pizza shift and rat shift type thing. Mm-hmm. Then he would take me out for a, uh, a roast beef sub and a small pint of beer at the, at the grad house across the road. And, that nice. was, and I'm sure that was to, because he knew that I was paying rent and driving and doing all this crazy stuff. And, and right. he just generally appreciated, you know, me being, I mean, I look back and it's like, it was, I spent a lot of time on the road and living in a basement apartment in this house we were renting and in really dark, radio maze rooms when it was beautiful outside yeah yeah so by compare so i i guess i understand why why he was uh why he was so good to me in part and and when i, I met you because he jerry actually took me to my first conference right uh sysbiz at u of t in 1993 and you know put me up in some kind of uh apartment with them really cool downtown apartment and yeah it was that was my first conference so and that's oh, where nice. i met you yeah, because I mean, my that was when I was at. Uh, yeah, I was. I was just finishing graduate school then. So yeah, and then later on, then you ended up going to uh, Queens and working with Ron Wiseman. Uh, what what made you want to do stuff on songbird uh, communication with Ron? Well, actually, so the nineteen ninety three. Not only was it my first conference, and and you know, I got to meet you and Sarah mm-hmm. uh, Settleworth and Ken Chang, and I met Ron Wiseman, or at least. I, I got to watch Ron perform and I guess I think, I think <laughs> we all had yeah. lunch together. I think it was, at, I think it was, uh, 
you, Sarah, Ken Chang, uh, David Sherry, because I think he was still there or he was visiting. He was visiting because by then he had left for, for Western. For Western, Western, right. And Ron and I, we all had lunch. Uh, but I, I remember, you know, watching Ron and, and the conversation, the sort of debriefing that I had with Jerry after was, you know, what what is this guy doing? Like working with birds. Didn't you get the memo? Like you're a comparative <laughs> psychologist. You're supposed to, you know, you're you're supposed to work with pigeons and rats. And maybe if you're lucky, you're going to work with a non-human primate. And, and I think that I gave uh, your and uh, Sarah's work a pass because even though you were working with this nefarious, wild, you know, feral songbird, <laughs> you, you were doing things that were like decidedly comparative cognition approved because it was spatial memory. And well, you know, we study spatial memory with rats. So if Broadbeck wants to study spatial memory with birds, (laughs) then it's okay. It's okay. If, if Dave and Sarah want to do their crazy little bird thing, that's fine. Yeah. 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 That works. But Wiseman, you know, he's not only is he using the wrong species, he's doing a discrimination, you know, based on auditory cues and it's, you know, all this other nonsense and, and he's really excited about it. And, you know, although there, you know, it's neck and neck. You and he were both pretty excited about your talks. Um, <laughs> but, but, but with the, the age handicap, given that he was actually older, you would probably, um, you know, potentially because he was a professor, you might expect that he's an older professor that he should be calm and cool and collected. <laughs> I knew, I've known Ron since 1988, or I knew him since 1998. I, I, I never saw him calm once. No, no. Yeah. Well, I, I learned that in, you know, the 20 some odd years after that, that we, that we knew each other. But so when it came down to it and it was time to, to decide, you know, there was an offer from Bill Roberts at Western. Mm-hmm. It was a great offer. And I think I talked with Suzanne McDonald and there was an offer from, or some conversation with um, Denny DeCantizero from McMaster and and a few other uh, places where I'd put in applications, although nothing uh, positive came from U of T, unfortunately. Sounds Anyways, <laughs> so but but when I looked at the whole thing, I thought you know, I think uh, you know, although it's I I kind of done a one eighty from the first time that I saw Ron, I thought well what the hell like he's doing it. it's so different why would he want to do that and then when it was time for me to sort of fully commit to the next five plus years of my life for graduate school, at least I, and when I was kind of looking at, you know, what do I want to do? Um, it just seemed like the, the, the possibilities that you, um, could, uh, sort of approach in terms of research questions and, and sort of level of analysis with the songbird model all the way from basic field biology to, you know, standard, uh, hardcore uh, comparative cognition and everything in between. I thought, well, at least I won't get bored. Um, so yeah, and and I did that, and uh, yeah, that was that's that's the the short story of my life. So, do you think that I mean, you've been looking at this stuff, uh, so- song learning, uh, and 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 call stuff too uh, for a long time. Would you think that it's is it safe to call it an adaptive specialization of learning? Um, well, I, I guess that depends on on uh, at what point in uh, evolutionary history we're attempting to yeah. to talk about. I mean, because it's it certainly seems like a specialized uh, suite of behaviors. Yeah. Um, uh, it, but you know, trying to, I guess. That's a, no, that's a, a thing that I, yeah. I've, I've tried to avoid uh, in <laughs> in my research. I mean, I I like to think about it, and usually it's you know thinking about it at a conference, um, having a conversation like this. Yes. Um, yeah, 
I mean, what came first, the the chicken or the egg, right? So, what you know, was it the, you know, because that's what I mean about what level of evolutionary history you're talking about. So, right. at what point did the song control pathways that songbirds have but non-songbirds don't have, what at what point did that emerge? Yeah. yeah. Uh, or um, in, in evolutionary history or in evolutionary time, yeah, when yeah. did that emerge? And then when it initially emerged, did it emerge for, see, you got me started, did it emerge for um, really, uh, I wouldn't say rudimentary, but but uh, fundamental vocalizations that many uh, bird species and even many animal groups share? So like alarm calls and, and things like that, just things to basically get attention. And then from there, did it was it then further co-opted for um, these elaborate vocal displays that can be used for mate attraction and territorial defense, or as Ron would have said, Sex and violence. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so, is there a way to answer that question even? I mean, beyond my time machine, and I've already said, said too much about that. Right. Yes. Um, be our little secret. <laughs> yeah. Um, no one's going to listen to this, so I wouldn't worry about it. Yeah, I don't uh, I don't really know. Um, I mean, maybe it's, again, and, and not to not to try to, to no, no. Uh, deflect the question, but it's, it is something that I, I think about a bit, but it's something that I like to... I like to consider um, in this in this sort of forum in a sort of oh yeah you know just sort of uh, you know dreaming uh, yeah. as opposed to in the, the the type of of research question that you would build a program around because yeah. quite honestly I think it's it's a pretty it's a pretty um, in potentially intractable or at least hard to nail down phenomenon. Oh, so, I think so. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess there's some things that you can. I, even though it's fair to even say this, but the categorical abilities of songbirds, you and I used to have these discussions all the time. I think we were yeah. both, uh, I think I was a postdoc and you're in grad school or something, but I mean, I wonder if the cat, if the categorical abilities of songbirds are different than those of non, non songbirds. Well, that's a, that's an empirical question. Yeah. I think. Um, I think that it would be a good one to answer. Uh, and I can't, I know that we've done some work with, uh, Cetatiforms, so with uh, budgies, but of course they're a vocal learner. So then you've got the—it's not a songbird, but it's a vocal learner confound. Um, I mean, what you would really have to do is to try to get some uh, something that is a subbossing, yes, uh, and and then do the work that way. So you know, we did try to approach this, and Tom Zentall and Ron uh, had some success doing some frequency perception work with pigeons. Uh, we tried to do some uh, follow-up work with Marcia Spetch, and it didn't really work. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that would be, you know, potentially uh, the way to go about it. And yeah. Yeah, uh, I, I do know that. Um, um, I think that. Oh, no, I guess that would be in a songbird. Cynthia Gray down at Johns Hopkins. I'm I'm pretty sure she did some uh, category perception work. But I'm again, I'm pretty sure. That, that that was in a songbird. I mean, there's there's a huge amount of category perception work that Wasserman's done. Oh heck yeah! I mean, we just heard that at CO three. Yeah. <laughs> right, but it, but I mean, so were you speaking in with uh, respect to categories in general or auditory categories? Oh, auditory. I mean, I think that's where if there's going to be some specialization, it's got to be an auditory thing. Right. I would think. I mean, I guess it could sort of bleed into 
a visual stuff. I, I, cause the sort of cognitive architecture is going to be this using the same gear in the brain uh, at a, at a sort of higher level of analysis. But yeah, it would almost, I, I would, I think it would be more interesting if it was all at, uh, auditory and then you, then you do it visually and you see there's no difference, you know, the sort of Al Camel approach. I expect yeah. a difference here and don't expect a difference here. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, that would be, that would certainly be, uh, would certainly be worth doing. I mean, yeah. I guess if, I guess if you went back to um, to Hernstein and Wasserman's uh, earlier work, then mm-hmm. of course the premise of the category perception, it, and you know the, these, those guys use the the visual uh, modality mostly out of um, because that was the way things were set up in, in labs to use with pigeons. But of course the idea was that they're testing these general processes, yes. and that if you were if you were a true believer that. Uh, Category perception is a pervasive phenomenon. To, paraf- to badly paraphrase Hernstein, yeah. that that w- how did he put it? That was that has been shown in every species in which it has been uh, adequately tested. Then you would expect that that would uh, that you would see that across a species, and that you would see that also across modalities. But in, you know, to your point, you would be you would consider or you would expect that you would see uh, peaks and valleys in terms of performance based on yeah specializations so i guess in that way couched uh in that sort of framework of auditory category perception yes it's an adaptive specialization well it took us a while to get there but uh, you, you, we, i finally nailed you down on this i'm glad you took a stand we're at war you got to pick a side only um, 19 minutes and 33 seconds according to the clock on skype so <laughs> Now, recently you've been, or not recently, well, I guess recently, but in the last few years, you've, you've been working on some uh, gene expression stuff. So just talk a little bit about that because I kind of, I read one of the papers today and I'll, I will admit to you that there are times when I looked at it and then I just sort of went, well, uh, and then there's that bit. And that's kind of like when they say the Heisenberg uh, compensators are, are working, aren't working properly on the transporter on Star Trek. I'll just skip yeah. that part. So walk me through how these these kind of this this research program about, about the the gene expression. Well, I mean, this uh, had its genesis with Ron, and that was one of his one of his sort of uh, goals uh, when I first arrived there back in the '90s, and we um, went down uh, to Johns Hopkins and and uh, were instructed from with Greg Ball and people at his lab, right. and basically you know taught us the techniques, and then we ported it back to. Queens and worked out a few bumps because even if you do things exactly the same way when you're in a different place for whatever reason, anyways, we got it worked out. <laughs> and then um, I went away for a postdoc and didn't do that stuff for a while. But when I started my lab, um, it seemed to me to be the just in, in terms of the way that my research program was set up, it seemed to be at the level of analysis that made the most sense for what we were doing. So basically, the the way this works is that you would um, put the birds into uh, auditory isolation for some period of time, then you would play them back some stimuli that presumably, um, if the stimuli were um, uh, going to be encoded or or uh, precipitate some type of cellular and synaptic change, that you would see um, changes um, in protein production. And that's the thing that we're actually attempting to label mm-hmm. when we do the aminocytochemistry uh, after the fact, <clears throat> after the bird uh, is euthanized and, and you do all the processing, then you can basically assess the different uh, brain areas that are active during the playback of particular stimuli. And you can ask questions about 
you know, which area is active and uh, how does that vary based on the sex of the individual that's, that's um, doing the listening, the type of vocalization they're listening to, the sex of the, of the um, animal that's vocalizing to the receiver. There's all these different types of questions that you can look at and you can do it in a way that in a sort of, it doesn't have uh, amazing temporal specificity, obviously, because the, um, the amount of protein uh, product that you uh, visualize is integrated over a long period of time. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, but because of the way that you set up the experiments and the way you do the controls, um, you're basically uh, reasonably certain that the stimuli that you presented are or are not the things that are actually um, driving the protein expression. So that when you do these, uh, you compare uh, one group to another, depending on the the particular background of the the birds that are in the experiment and the particular stimuli that those birds are listening to, then you can um, you can get some information about how the birds um, uh, what basically the neural basis of the behavioral aspect of our work is, um, what the relationship right. is there. So, 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 so the idea the zinc, this is the zinc uh, genes, right? Right, immediate yeah. early gene. Yeah. Okay, and they're ex- they're expressed when there's learning basically is is that the idea they're, yeah they're associated with with uh, long term changes okay. um, in cellular structure based on yeah it's learning and memory okay because i mean uh, like i said a little bit of reading i uh, i've done on this uh, stuff uh, it seems that like so there's like i think four of these genes or whatever and then they're also um there are homologs, of course, in, in, in mammals, and we see the same sort of thing like in hippocampus in a rat when it learns about a maze or some such thing, right? Right. In fact, okay. uh, in fact, Zank is, um, is the, the uh, antibodies that we use actually are um, not specific for, uh, for birds um, hmm. because there's so much overlap. Oh, right. Yeah. Um, so... Do you think that I mean this is actually it's very cool stuff because it it's it gets at those kind of questions of you know what's happening and then you can look at it behaviorally but then you also get at the brain and I like I like this idea of things be again I I'm a I mean, perhaps a disciple might be the right word of uh, sort of Al Camel's approach of the you know many different levels of explanation and and all of it coming together the sort of synthetic approach do you think looking at things uh, from a neural and from uh, even a gene expression kind of level do you think that more and more comparative cognition is going to go this way, or do you think it's going to depend a lot on the question itself that's being asked? I, I, I would hope that it that it would, but I would hope that it would, as you um, suggested, based on the question that people are asking, mm-hmm. because it doesn't. I mean, I, I could imagine that that you would attempt to uh, to do some kind of neurobiological assay for every single thing that you that you study, and it's true. I mean, if you talk to my colleague Clayton Dixon. You know, he would argue that behavior is just a product of, of brain activation, um, which is is true. Uh, but depending on the questions that you're asking, the yeah. the value added for doing a neurobiological component uh, to a cognitive task um, it might be you know might have a different payoff depending on what question it is that you're asking. Yeah, I mean, I, it's like I have a buddy who's a social psychologist, and uh, and we're saying to him, you know, uh, I, I don't as, as much as the fundamental attribution error is something that's clearly, you know, it's chemically mediated. It's just behavior in a brain. I don't think it really gets us anywhere to put people in, in an MRI right. <laughs> and do these kind of tasks. Right. 
Well, it doesn't get you anywhere, anywhere except on the on the cover of a really high profile journal when you have pretty pictures of different brain areas act, you know, yeah. being activated when you know someone is you know making the fundamental attribution error or not. You know? And that, that, that's I think that part of the there's there's almost a rush uh, in in all kinds of fields in psychology uh, to to look at you know brain regions and well, let's let's get let's throw them in an, in an MRI and you know and right. twenty years ago when when we were kids it was throw them in a PET scan because it was cheaper. Yeah. Um, it seems like that, that, that whole, uh, sort of, um, like you said, the, the rush to the rush to find the neurobiological basis, it seems like it's calmed down a little bit, maybe, but that just could be because I'm, because I'm not, uh, actively looking for a tenure track job. I mean, the people, (laughs) the people people to ask that would be to ask people who are senior grad students and postdocs who are looking for a tenure track job because, because while it seems less obvious to me, um, I, I don't. I still think that that those jobs are asking people to have those skills. So using some kind of weird logic, because there those many jobs are asking people to have those skills. I must assume that there is still a huge push for that to for that sort of relationship yep. to to be investigated between brain and behavior. Yeah, and I mean, I think it's one of these things that it, it matters a great deal, and everything we realize that everything is, as I said, neurochemistry. But uh, does it does it really help you a whole lot to explain the phenomenon? But yeah, you're right. I mean, it's the kind of question, perhaps that. Uh, well, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna have Neil McMillan on in a couple of weeks, uh, so I'll, I'll ask him and see what he says because he's a postdoc and he might have the idea of you know more of an idea of this. It kind of blows me away every time I you know. Uh, you look on maybe it's your Facebook feed or something, or you're looking at the Science Daily or whatever, and and you see these you know brain scans of conservatives versus liberals. It's why, yeah, Do, yeah. How's that helping us? Well, I mean, the, from our perspective, from our work, I mean, we did, um, you know, some of the stuff that we found, uh, especially the more recent stuff with Mark Avey, mm-hmm. um, it was pretty remarkable. Looking at you know trying to to sort of tie brain and behavior, and in fact. Um, that the work that Mark did, and then the follow-up work that Jenna uh, Congdon from Algoma actually um, is doing, is actually showing us that um, that it, we can learn just about it. we can learn more, or at least or different from when things work out differently than you might expect, or when mm-hmm. they work, might work out the same. So, um, Mark did a, a really cool study. I don't know if you've ever heard. I think I presented it the, where he presented uh, predator vocalizations or when he presented mobbing calls from chickadees yes. that were signaling predator vocalizations. And amazingly, um, because we've got two sort of lines of research, one line of research showed that um, chickadees will have hygiene expression for conspecific vocalizations, so their own species, above heterospecific vocalizations. But the, the conditions under which we found that phenomenon was only when the conspecific and the heterospecific vocalizations were uh, quite distinct in their acoustic structure. So if you take a chickadee call and you pit that against birds that heard um, some other more tonal vocalization, well, there's a huge response to the chickadee call and almost no response to the tonal vocalization. And you say, aha, mm-hmm. conspecific, heterospecific. But then when you take uh, chickadee uh, called denotes, so the, the part that they're named after, and that are a harmonic series, and you play those to birds, and you take a bunch of other uh, similar notes from an array of species that are uh, 
related in various ways to chickadees. So other chickadees, some tit mice, some zebra finches that are way not related to these guys. And when you do that, then the gene expression is uniformly high. So the conspecific heterospecific discrimination goes away that we saw. So so it's like so it looks like in that respect for that discrimination that right. the conspecific heterospecific discrimination uh, in the brain anyways is really mediated by acoustics. And people would say, well, yeah, duh, of course it's mediated by acoustics. Um, but then when we go and do this predator thing, so we take so we take chickadee call, mobbing calls that we know are going to elicit some gene expression because it's a conspecific. And you play back chickadee calls that a chickadee is making for a low threat predator versus a high threat predator. And guess what? You have a lot of gene expression for mm-hmm. the high threat predator and way less gene expression for the low threat predator. And then you take acoustically distinct predator vocalizations. Right. So the you know the the calls from a sawwet or a great horned owl. Okay. And you get significantly different responses for a low and a high threat predator. So there's no significant difference between a chickadee saying that's a sawwet and a sawwet saying I'm a sawwet. And uh, there's no difference there, and there's no difference in gene expression between a chickadee saying that's a great horn and a great horn alcohol. But we, ju- I just told, finished telling you that if you do yeah. a conspecific heterospecific specific discrimination, it's all about the acoustics. Yes. But the but the chickadee call, mobbing call, and the predator, the owl call, couldn't be any more acoustically distinct. Oh, sure, totally, yeah. It's a you know, so there's something there's something more because the the story from if we had it just ended with the the phylogenetic story as well, conspecific heterospecific discrimination depends on acoustic dissimilarity. Yeah. But uh. maybe not. <laughs> because when you look at the predator stuff, there's so the predator thing is at least at least two pieces of information. One is that it seems like threat is encoded uh, obviously in the calls that was shown before, but the, the threat that's encoded in the mobbing calls is also encoded in the predator calls. And it's also reflected in the level of brain activity. I love it. I, I, cool. Yeah. Compli- I, see, I, you want things to be, I mean, simple is great, but p- part of me just loves when things get really, really complicated because, uh, well, first of all, because it, it allows you to, uh, have a huge research program to keep answering the questions on a practical level, but it also just, it, it's more, almost more of a fun puzzle to try to solve too. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's certainly not, it's certainly not straight ahead and it, it does, <laughs> yeah. and it does, and it does, you know, make you scratch your heads. And then, and then of course the, where Jenna comes in is she's actually uh, doing more straight behavioral work mm-hmm. based on playback of different uh, stimuli and seeing what birds do. So you've got the brain going crazy when it hears, um, a particular vocalization. Um, but then when you have the birds actually in the boxes, depending on what the vocalization is, their behavior is going to differ dramatically. And it doesn't differ in a way. It's not, it's not differing in a way that's, that's sort of positively correlated with say the level of gene expression in the sense that if there's a lot of gene expression, there's automatically a lot of behavior because of course the context is changing in the sense that just because an animal is perceiving a particular vocalization and the brain is, is saying, holy crap, I'm about to die if I don't move. <laughs> that is, doesn't necessarily have to be reflected in behavior in that sort of one-to-one way. So just because the brain's freaking out, it doesn't mean that the bird actually automatically goes to freak out because if the brain is perceiving a high threat, then potentially the first order of business, especially if you're a, a single 
um, well, not a single, unattached, um, <laughs> a solo songbird, uh, when you first perceive a predator, the first thing to do isn't to freak out and fly around. It's to freeze. Yeah, exactly. So you're going so to have these behavioral and neurobiological dissociations even within even within a system, not not just in the way that I described when you look at phylogeny versus versus threat perception, even within sort of the threat perception silo, you're going to see differences that differ between uh, brain and behavior and depending on context and a whole ton of other stuff because guess what? Nature is complicated. Yeah, yeah, and, and cool as hell. Yep, for sure. Um, we, we, switching gears a little bit, when you look back on your career, I mean, clearly Ron Wiseman, obviously, is your, was your PhD and MA supervisor. Jerry Cohen was your honors thesis supervisor. Who else, uh, who's other, whose work uh, influenced you or just who influenced you uh, as far as your science goes? Well, I did a, a postdoc at Duke with um, right. Steve Mickey in uh, biology and uh, Rich Mooney in neurobiology. And uh, that was uh, Duke was great. It was it was easy to get distracted, though, because there was uh, being in biology and in neurobiology and with the Department of Psychology and with the Center for Cognitive Neuroscience. Basically, it meant you could do uh, go to talks all the time and not actually ever do any work. <laughs> but it was a, it was a really stimulating place to be. And. And just hanging out with, um, um, independent of any of the work that we did with um, Steve Nowicki and with Rich Mooney, just to sort of get their perspective and another take um, on, you know, how two other highly successful scientists mm-hmm. um, and other people, because Steve Nowicki used to have Susan Albert's um, lab group, the two lab groups would meet together. Nice. And just seeing how, how those how those folks did what they did and and uh, approached things, and, and it sort of made it... It made it easier or helped me uh, when I got my own job to, to sort of chart my own path to, to not. And that's what people always try to tell you, that you need to get different perspectives. And it's and I think that a lot of times people assume that when you're going to a different place, that you're only seeking a different scientific perspective, which clearly you are um, trying to do that. But it's also just different perspectives in how people manage labs and how people manage people in their labs and how people manage their own life. How do they do what they do? Um, yeah. You know, maybe someone, you know, is in the lab every morning at 7 a.m. and they really regimented and they do their stuff and maybe someone else comes in a bit later and that's a function of the research they're doing in the lab and with someone like Steve Nowicki, a function of the research that then, I mean, that's how he operated with getting in early. Right. But of course, when he's not in the lab, you know, he uh, still goes and does his own field research um, every spring um, in in uh, Pennsylvania. So he's when he's doing field research, he's out and you know doing work even earlier. So I'm I'm guessing that maybe that might be part of uh, why he does what he does, and maybe it's folded into you know he's yet a young son at the time or youngish son at the time. So, so who knows? But you just see how people do their right. stuff, and and that 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 part is just as important, I think, as the rest. I mean. Because you can sit around and, and do something like this whenever you want if you want to chat with someone about their philosophy of science. But seeing how how not just their philosophy of science but how the, the pragmatic aspects of science, yes. how that folds together with their actual life. Um, because, of course, that's the part that no one really teaches you. I mean, you, you, go to, you go to school, right? You go to undergrad and to grad school and postdoc and whatever. And you just, you just go to do the stuff. And yeah. no one really teaches you that you need to also, like, you know, hopefully, um, you know, raise a 
a family of non-axe murderers and (laughs) hopefully do that with a significant other who hasn't divorced you because you're, you know, a complete absentee, you know, goofball. So, and those are the things that you, that you, that you can take lessons from, uh, in addition to the science stuff. Yeah. And nobody, I mean, also nobody, uh, I always say that, you know, I think a good supervisor, in fact, totally protects a student uh, from even at a post, the postdoc level from like departmental politics and committee work that they're doing and all that stuff and just lets them concentrate on doing their science. Right. But you get you're usually in for quite a shock when you get your first academic job and they go, oh, you're on these three committees. What? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's or or in like in Ron's case, you know, he um, get introduces you to things or allows you to pursue things that are. Um, minimally invasive to invasive to your work, but that do uh, help you out figuring mm-hmm. out that, you know, like, you know, being on an animal care committee and maybe helping out with some animal care protocols, because uh, it helps, the, it helps the mission of the lab, but it also helps it uh, helps you because eventually you're going to be on your own and you're going to have to, you know, write your own animal care protocols and rebut the questions and, you know, allay the fears of the animal care committee. And yeah. when it's, I mean, you think that it's a big deal when it's your PhD and postdoc, and of course it's a big deal, but it's not quite the same big deal as when it's your tenure track job that if you don't get an animal care approval for your research, you are not doing research. And yeah. If you're not doing research, you're not going to have a job. That's right. I mean, I I remember, uh, God, I, my, my very first week of graduate school and Sarah Shuttleworth gave me her NSERC application and said, you want to read this over? And I looked at her like... I'm just a kid. Why, what are you doing? <laughs> and I read it, and I, I believe the only thing I, I, I said was the graphs look good. Uh, <laughs> I had yeah. nothing to say. But the thing is, I mean, I, I think that's a really important aspect is, is, is you know, bringing somebody in and, and, and to all those other uh, aspects of, of doing science, right? It's not just the, the dedication and the coming in every day and the uh, running the animals and uh, that kind of stuff. Though it's partly that too, uh, and getting pooped on by birds, uh, right. things like that. Yeah, Ron always used to joke. He's like, "Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure you guys just think I sit at home and and you know just waste my time, um, you know, because we we'd be in the lab, you know, you know, doing the whole bird pooping thing and all that business <laughs> and, and running the birds. But it's like, but of course, that's you know, you, you that's where you start to learn the the sort of levels. And it's not a hierarchy in the sense of you know, Ron had a crown and he came in and sat on his throne or anything. <laughs> but it's just that you, there's there's all these different levels and that. Um, I guess maybe in a, the same structure as like the military, just so that so that there's a, this decision making uh, process that can happen efficiently, and you've got different people that are good at different things that you know do those different things. Um, I remember yeah. one time Barry Frost came uh, into the lab, and I can't remember what exactly I was doing. I was help, helping out one of his students with something, whether it was sound or a graph or something. It, it was at the time for me, it was no big deal. Because we had this really nice Macintosh that Ron and a bunch of people got some money for, and and it you know this is back in the days when you had those CRTs that could you know give you a sunburn. Yeah. Um, but it was the biggest and the best CRT that there was on the floor, so it was cool. And we're and we're using this Power Mac uh, that actually might be, be in my basement lab at the U of A, but don't tell anyone that. Um, <laughs> cut that part out. Um, and and so and Barry comes in and and. Uh, you know, I'm doing this thing and, and he's looking, he's just looking at us. Wow. You're really zipping around there. And I'm like, yeah, whatever. Like I'm just doing it. Like, yeah. you know, it was, and it wasn't anything complicated. I can't even remember what it was. Um, but 
but it's not, and it's not like Barry couldn't figure it out. I mean, certainly, you know, it's a brilliant guy. Oh yeah. But, but it's the point is that if if you're the one who's got your hand on the mouse of that particular program all the time, it, it's completely from the lab perspective, completely inefficient for, you know, the, the, the PI to be the one who's doing that. Oh, totally. Yeah. You'll never get anything done because a, he's taking four times as, or she's taking four times as long um, as the graduate student who is really good at it. And I mean, of course, that's, that's the big joke in my lab that I stay out of the lab as much as possible. So I don't screw things up, <laughs> uh, but then they're being taken away from the other stuff that, that they necessarily have to do like first drafts on grants and, and first drafts on animal care proposals and dealing with, you know, other administrative things that, that only they can deal with. So, yeah. No, that's that's part that's part of the way it works, right? I I, to, I totally get it. Uh, I really appreciate you uh, coming on today, Chris. This has been a lot of fun. Uh, if people want to follow you, let's say on Twitter, how do they uh, find you? I think that my handle is the same as for my Skype, so it's just CB Sturdy. CB Sturdy. Um, and if people want to learn more about the lab, uh, what's your website? I think. Oh, hang on a second. It's a good. I'm pretty sure it's just Psych. Dot ualberta.ca slash. I think it's just C sturdy. Yeah, I think that, that, that's what I have here. There'll also be a link in the uh, in the uh, blog post that, that goes along with this at spitandwitches.com. Um, yeah, and if you want to follow me, anybody, you can follow me on Twitter at dbroadbeck. Uh, and you can find other podcasts I do by, well, just following that and, uh, you know, going from there. Uh, again, like Chris, I really appreciate this. Thanks a lot, man. Not a problem. For many scientists, it's your experiences in life that count. Your upbringing, your education, your environment. Chief among these scientists is psychologist John Watson, who offers a theory that is the mirror opposite of eugenics. Pigeon learned that pecking the disc produced a reward. Then the behavior of pecking could be studied in relation to how often that reward was offered. Or in Skinner's terms, what was the schedule of reinforcement? The main thing is what, what we call schedules of reinforcement. Reinforcement is what the layman calls reward, and you can schedule it uh, so that a reward occurs every now and then when a pigeon does something. We usually use a response with a pigeon pecking a little disc, a little spot in the wall, and you can reinforce with food. But you don't reinforce every time. You're every, perhaps every tenth time, or perhaps only once every minute or something like that. There are a very large number of, of schedules, and they have their uh, special effects. Uh, the same genome and so they would try to we are a clone if you want and, and we try to help our um, gummies 
to go into the next generation. In this case, it's a conflicting system. And um, for that reason, this is very interesting. This is a parasite, and this is um, one of the many hosts that is feeding this baby, which doesn't look at all like the, um, like the host, and nevertheless, they manage to use precise trickery to make them do what they want.